Join us today for a discussion with Alexander Beiner, a contemplative practitioner and teacher, psychedelic researcher, and co-host of the extremely popular podcast, Rebel Wisdom. He discusses the way in which our culture has gone adrift, the crisis of trust, the challenge of finding truth in a competing epistemological world. He looks at how we can alleviate some of these problems, and he emphasizes how it's important to go beyond the intellectual, to actually embody practices and to go deep within. And he wonders about the ways in which we can bring together social activists and spiritual practitioners, and he looks deeply into the question of whether psychedelics may still have a role here. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and my co-host is John Dupuy. And today we have a guest who I'm just delighted to have a chance to talk to because he has been tracing and creating the cultural edge and observing various movements and issues and has had a finger on the pulse of our culture for well over a decade. His name is Alexander Biner, and he's played many roles. He's a committed contemplative and founded the meditation school in London, Open Meditation. He's been deeply involved in a variety of psychological growth and uh, transformational practices and himself is trained as a counselor. He's a group facilitator and leads groups online and in person in the UK and in Europe. He's also been a researcher of the psychedelic renaissance and is a director of the largest psychedelic conference in Europe, the Breaking Convention Conference. He's also been a kind of uh, inspiration for our podcast because Alexander has been the co-host of the Rebel Wisdom podcast, which has been a pioneer initially in what was called the intellectual dark web. And then he appreciated the need for greater depth and coined the term the intellectual deep web. But he's also acknowledged that it needs to go beyond intellect in some of his most recent writings. And he has been someone who has, in his role as a host of Rebel Wisdom, has interviewed, dialogued with, and observed some of the emerging currents in our culture for well over a decade. He's also a writer. If you'd like to see some of his work, I recommend his articles on Medium. And he's really one of the people who I think of as someone with his finger on the cultural pulse. So I'm just delighted to have uh, Alexander with us and to have someone who embodies the qualities we hope to bring to this podcast, which is contemplative depth and an awareness of and concern for the great issues of our time. So, Alexander, or Ali, as I know you like to be called, welcome. It's just a delight to have you with us. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here. And hi, John. Really glad to be with you guys. And, and yeah, really looking forward to this. I think we'll, we'll probably cover a lot of ground, is, is my sense. I assume so. So I mentioned a couple of times just how you have been on the edge 
bridge both a creator and observer of the cultural movements of the last decade. And with the internet, it feels like cultural evolution is accelerating in ways that probably leave us all spinning. So I'd just love to step back and ask you to reflect on what you've observed over the last decade or more. And what are some of the things that, for example, have most stood out for you and perhaps most surprised you? Mm, Yes, what a great question. I'll zoom out a little bit. And yeah, I actually think you mentioned the internet, and that's maybe a nice anchor point to look at the trajectory of the internet. I think people in in my generation, so I'm 34, so I'm probably the last, kind of the last couple of years of people who can remember a time without the internet and looking things up in encyclopedias. And then at, at about age eight or nine, it went from Encyclopedia Britannica, like all the different uh, volumes that you'd have on a bookshelf to the encyclopedia on the CD-ROM. And I remember that really vividly, actually. And then, of course, the evolution of the internet as a, at first, novelty, and then increasingly somewhere we're spending almost as much time as we are in what some call real life. Although, of course, if you read a lot of science fiction literature, there's that blending of the two worlds is, uh, is often a theme, and I think something that we're living through. So, I often think about the history of the internet as a, as a way, a useful way to track how culture has changed. And I'm always struck by the optimism that there was in the early internet and also a, quite a strong spiritual sensibility with a lot of the, the people who were involved in that. And a sense that, you know, some people saw like, you know, Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary, I think specifically looked at it as a kind of like Gaian Gaian mind, like this kind of earth mind that would bind us all together and, and help us to come together, you know, and, and, and share ideas, which, you know, it's a complex place. It certainly does that. And I think maybe the peak of that, well, yes, perhaps the peak, I'm sure lots of people would have a different answer to this, but it was the Arab Spring and this sense of the internet being a part of democratizing the world as well. And then partly, I think, because of the, the way the technology evolved and the influence of the market primarily, the internet started becoming a much darker place and <laughs> a place that, while it certainly has connected us and completely changed our lives, has also really become a kind of collective unconscious, you know, a kind of place where all of our darkest darkest aspects go to have kind of unbridled freedom and a place that, you know, we've covered this on Rebel Wisdom a lot, where the technology of the social media platforms, for example, is on a trajectory of what uh, Tristan Harris calls a kind of a race to the bottom of the brainstem. So specifically designed to be addictive and to maximize time on the platform, which often is about maximizing how outraged people feel. And so this kind of cultural polarization, I think, I don't think is caused by the internet, but I think it's certainly been made much worse by it. And so now in 2021, well, I've described it as a kind of, it often feels like we're in a noir detective story in some way, because we are encountering this, I think a lot of people have a sense of being culturally adrift, and also a sense that so many of the institutions that we used to trust to make sense of the world are captured in some way, usually captured by market forces, captured by really bad incentive structures, whether that's academia or the medical institution or the, you know, big pharma, even a lot of our religious institutions, there's this real lack of trust, a kind of a crisis of trust in institutions. And then part of what that creates is a kind of wild west of, well, where do we get truth from? 
And online, there's a ferocious narrative war raging, and it's a multipolar war, not between... Yeah, so, so there's many, many different actors. There's an article called The Internet of Beefs by a guy called Venkatesh Rao, who really lays out this, this dynamic very well, where you have lots of people with an audience, and they're incentivized to have their followers kind of engage in war with one another. You know, they can monetize that because they get more clicks, they get more engagement. And that is happening at such an alarming and intense rate that for those of us just going online to say, figure out, well, what's the best climate science out there? What, you know, I want to make, I want to make up my mind about what's going on environmentally and, and what's the best, you know, probably to find the best course of action, or I want to figure out, okay, well, what's really the science around vaccines, or I want to figure out really anything, <laughs> anything at all. We are, almost immediately entering into a kind of narrative war. And so a lot of what we've been focused on in, in Rebel Wisdom is, well, how do we use the some of the techniques and, and attitudes that have come from the wisdom traditions and the personal growth worlds to make that a little bit easier? A, to be able to decenter, take a step back and have some discernment over what's going on and what information we're absorbing, you know, aware of our own emotional reactions. And then figuring out how to come into a, a new kind of dialogue with each other around really difficult ideas. And so that's no easy task. <laughs> it's a very, very, very yeah. difficult one. And we don't claim to have the answer to it. But I, I do think there's a great role for different practices that, that have been around for thousands of years in, in helping us do that. Well, you said so much there. First, you pointed out the, the, the enormous optimism that arose with this new technology, the web. And there was Peter Russell's book, The Global Brain, and a whole slew of ideas that this was going to bring humanity together at last. And of course, what most people forgot, and I think Ken Wilber was a notable exception, was that it was just a medium and you can run multiple levels of consciousness through that same medium and amplify them depending on the audience they get. And, and as you pointed out painfully, the, with Tristan's idea of the race to the bottom of the brainstem, that there are certain there are incentives and forces and something in the inherent nature of the, the web as it's currently constituted that leads to a kind of lowest common denominator. And I love what you said that you're now engaged in a process of discovering how to alleviate some of that. And I wonder, I'd love you to expand on that because that just feels like such well, a... Let me say something that really moved me from Rebel Wisdom. There was a recently, and maybe it's ongoing, this kerfuffle of this conflict with Eric Weinstein and the ivermectin thing. And uh, Brett, Brett, his brother Brett. Brett I, I knew I was going to get the wrong brother. <laughs> no, anyway, sorry, sorry, Eric. And I saw how David really struggled with that. You know, I thought he had so much integrity and this man was a friend, you know, he's also really respected his brother's work and he was going out, starting a new thing and trying, and he didn't want to do it. It was something he was drawn into, but his integrity felt he had because he thought he was putting out information that was really harmful in a time of plague, if you will. And I just, that was one of the more moving things that I can remember on the internet in a long time, just seeing that struggle and witness that and how he, you know, used all his tools and took him right to the edge of his own, of his own self in order to ascertain the truth with a big T. It was good. And, and I appreciate you guys so much for kind of leading the way in that struggle that you're, well, that we're all engaged in who are engaged in the internet right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. And, and you know, 
that was really David's kind of very personal and, and difficult struggle with. And I think he did tremendously well with it. Definitely. It's, it's a, it actually leads quite nicely into Roger's question in the sense that when there's an argument over a proposition, right, this proposition of do, are the vaccines safe? And in that case, is ivermectin a better alternative? It's very difficult not to get caught in the, the propositional realm of, okay, well, let's look at the evidence. You kind of have to do that, right? You kind of got to look at the evidence and, and try and wrestle with that and try and find the good signal in all the noise and have the kind of critical capacity and discernment. But beneath all that is all these other, and I'm using a frame now from John Verveke, his, his uh, four ways of knowing. There's also this kind of, there's other ways of, well, actually I'll, I'll put a flag in that because it'll take a while to get into that. More is that, is, is the concept of our motivated reasoning, which is something I started investigating more when this was, when, when that story was, was ongoing, which is that, it seems that there's a kind of myth that we make decisions about things like this as purely rational agents. But I think a lot of the, the neuroscience is pointed towards the fact that our reasoning is motivated by our desires and our, our emotions. And so that's a great example, I think, of where it looks like we're talking about propositions. Does this work? Is this safe? But actually, we're talking about a huge realm of emotional and you know, arguably spiritual reality that's going on at the same time. There's so many different forces at play. And I think it often gets stuck in the propositional and then the, the conversation kind of breaks down, which I think, unfortunately, was, it was a place it was difficult to get beyond in that particular example. It was difficult to get beyond the propositional. And this points as well to something Roger mentioned in the introduction, which was the, the necessity to go beyond just the intellectual, you know, as, as we might define it. And that's where the practices, I think, come in. Because, for example if we are feeling a deep degree of certainty around something for which we don't have yet, or, or we're seeing the evidence as absolutely certain, then I think that's a warning sign usually to go, okay, well, is anything ever that certain? You know, do I, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a, a scientist. So I, you know, where is my own desire and my own needs and my own emotional needs getting met by this certainty. And that's the kind of process they don't teach in university very often. You know, the process of really looking within and asking where my entire frame of reference is perhaps wonky. And this is, again, John Verveke's work, if anyone hasn't checked it out, is, is well worth checking out. But he has this very nice metaphor, which is very simple, but I, I found it really useful of different practices being like like meditation, for example, being like taking off your glasses and looking at your frame because you, you're seeing through your glasses. So you're seeing through your frame and that's coloring how you see the entire world. And with a practice like meditation, we can take a step back and look at the frame and say, ah, okay, that's where it's dirty and I, I can kind of clean it. <laughs> and then once we've done that, you know, uh, John argues like, well, do we want to necessarily stay just staring at our glasses forever? Well, maybe uh, if we're living in a monastery, perhaps that is the choice we make and, you know, more power to us. That's great. But very often if we're engaged in the world, we have to then put our glasses back on and then engage with others and get into a process of kind of dialogue and testing. Okay, well, am I seeing more clearly now? You know, is my view on reality being met by other people's view? Is my life changing? Am I changing? Do I feel like I understand more? Do I feel more connected to reality, to myself, to the universe? And so that process of zooming out and zooming in continuously, like breath, 
I suppose, is I think one of the great gifts of practices like meditation and a practice I use a lot comes from the, the Ridwan tradition or Diamond Essence, I have a few different names of inquiry, kind of talking meditation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those practices are ones we use a lot in Rebel Wisdom in, in our, you know, we have a, an online course called Sense Making 101 and people often join it, I think, expecting to be looking at different news articles and kind of having discussions on the propositional level. And while we do do that, we mainly spend the first half of it focusing on presence. In fact, John Rebecca has a session on wisdom. We have Diane Michelle Hamilton talking about relating. And then once we've done that process and people have been working in pods together, inquiring and getting better at being curious about their own feelings, really listening to other people, then we introduce the, okay, well, let's try and make sense of this news article or this cultural phenomena. Because if we jump, you know, my, my sense when designing the course was there's almost, well, not no point, but I think it's a real wasted opportunity. And it feels like much more, I feel much more in integrity with saying, okay, well, the best I can offer from what I've learned and what our incredible faculty have to offer is that until we've developed those skills of zooming in and zooming out, like obviously keep developing them. If we at least get some basic, I, you know, we can just start riding the bike with it, then we can apply them to making sense of the outside. So moving from the inside to the outside. You're bringing in now one of the, one of the values of the contemplative practices that they actually provide ways of, as you call it, stepping back or in technical term, we'd call it moving to a meta perspective, a perspective mm-hmm. in which you can look at your previous perspective and also cultivating what I call perspectival fluidity, the capacity to move from one perspective to another and see. And as you implied, most of our lives, we live locked into one particular perspective, not even suspecting that others may, other perspectives may be equally valid and illuminating or different lenses and provide different context. So what, what I hear you saying is that if we are to approach both the issues of our time and particularly the challenges of meaning making that the current information warfare almost on the internet uh, faces us with, then we are required to become more, to cultivate our capacities for taking perspectives, for stepping out of our motivated reasoning. And only then, I love what you're you're doing because you're basically honing the instruments of knowing in people so that then the investigation of what so can be a little less emotional, a little broader, a little more of a meta perspective. It just sounds a very valuable approach. Yeah, thank you. That's I really love that phrase, the uh, perspectival fluidity. I think if, the, if there was one quality that I want to develop myself more always and would want people to be developing, if they're interested in making sense, it's that fluidity. Because I think so much of the issue is that stuckness in you know, often ideological perspective. And another thing came up for me as you were describing that, which is this tension that we always since the beginning of rebel wisdom have been trying to balance which is actually kind of hidden in the name you know the rebel side is is in a sense the kind of cultural political side and the wisdom side is the you know the wisdom side their wisdom traditions and the combination of the two you know i notice we have at different times swung more into say delving right into the cultural stuff, but then there's a feeling of getting trapped there. There's this real sense of like, oh God, we're going to spend all of our time arguing with people or trying not to argue with people or getting into some kind of completely wrapped up. And so, okay, well, 
if we zoom out into that meta perspective, okay, we get some breathing space. And then at the same time, if we stay in the meta perspective too long, it feels like we start to lose the, the, the sense of being tapped into the culture. And so this continuous process of trying to find the ever moving sweet spot between being meta enough and zoomed in enough. And I mean, we, we, I don't know if we ever have reached some magical sweet spot. I think we're always penduluming and the hope is that the pendulum swings a little bit less or is a little bit more, a bit fluid. And that's a, I think that's a wider, it's a wider phenomena I've noticed as well, which is that people in the spiritual traditions and the personal growth worlds very often, I think have a reluctance to go too much into the cultural political stuff. And likewise, people in that world, the cultural political world, are reluctant to go too far into the meta and the the spiritual. And so the bringing together of those two worlds feels very important. And, you know, for example, Jamie Bristow, who runs Mindfulness Initiative in the UK, people might be familiar with. He's been doing interesting work in that area, helping facilitate different groups teaching meditation to politicians. And he's become increasingly interested in the ideas of people like Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jordan Hall, who we've featured on Rebel Wisdom, who I would say are the, the kind of quintessential or some of the quintessential intellectual deep web characters who are bringing that more meta perspective And yet it's also, it's a tricky one because I notice in a lot of the online communities centered around these ideas, there's definitely a leaning towards meta rather than zooming in. I've noticed in in lots of the different ones. And I think that makes sense, but there's a potential danger. I think I've noticed it myself as well. There's a potential danger of using meta as a kind of bypass. And, you know, so Mm. I think a lot of us are familiar with the idea of spiritual bypassing. And I play with the word, the the idea of like meta bypassing, or in some instances, future bypassing, where people are very focused on how do we make a better world? And Mm -hmm. then become very fixated on that rather than focusing on the realities of what's happening right now, which is, I think, something humans tend to do with, you know, with our utopias, for example. So that's just an open inquiry. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm always on and, and attention that I'm feeling in this space quite often. That's so beautiful, Ali. I am really moved and inspired by it because what I hear you talking about is it doesn't have to be put in a spiritual framework, but like a spiritual politics or social concern and activity as a contemplative practice. And mm-hmm bringing those two worlds together and so that one's work in the world becomes a work in the world itself becomes a practice you talk about zooming out zooming in etc and i think of think of the there's the old there's a venerable idea uh, that uh, the historian arnold toynbee spoke of that he found well the one characteristic of the people that had most impact on human history was that they had in their lives displayed what he called the cycle withdrawal and return that a certain stage in their life, they withdrew from the busyness of society. They dove deep into themselves to look at the fundamental questions of life. They had some kind of illumination and then they brought that illumination back to help and heal and teach. And so that cycle withdrawal and return, which is what I think you're alluding to in a way, feels so crucial. It's like we go into ourselves in order to go deeper and more effectively out into the world. And we go out into the world in order to go deeper into ourselves. And it's mm. that way it's a mutually facilitating cycle. And I, I just really resonate with what you're saying. There. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I like that. I like that a lot, especially I don't think I'd, I'd quite consider that the kind of going out into the world in order, the other side of the equation that you mentioned right at the end, going out in, in order to connect 
more with ourselves. You know, that's a really beautiful side of the equation. I think there's often, I think I often miss out actually thinking about it. And I also have this image as you were talking of, you know, famously like the UK parliament, the setup they have where there's both sides of the house and then this little bit down on the ground in the middle and they, you know, stand up and it's quite raucous and, um, you know, (laughs) like odd and kind of archaic. But I have this image of instead of that, you would have a kind of group process. Like, you know, I've done a lot of, you know, group processes, like, you know, the Path of Love, for example, is one run by the people who trained me as a counselor. And just the depth of authenticity that comes out of a process like that, a kind of deep spiritual psychotherapeutic process, and making that an active political decision-making or political processing would be fascinating. Just, just imagining flipping those two worlds around. So instead of that raucous back and forth, I would love to just see one of them be like, okay, well, what's really coming up for you as you say that? <laughs> just yeah. kind of interrupt the performance. Yeah, Exactly. And, you know, it is possible. I had the privilege quite some years ago now being in a group mediated by great psychologists, probably the, actually often described as the greatest psychologist of the 20th century, Carl Rogers. And oh, wow. he conv- he was had enough he had enough power to convene a group of Central American politicians, high level, like vice presidents, ambassadors, etc., and to run a group with them for four days. And wow. I got to have the privilege of sitting in on this. And first day I was there standing up, people standing up and lecturing at one another. <laughs> and by the end of it, you know, also with having meals and beer and wine together, you know, it really became a much more interpersonally sense, generous and heartfelt community, such as you described. So it is possible. Not wow, many people that's have incredible. the yeah, not many people have the cachet of Carl Rogers to pull a group like that together, but it's nice to know it's possible. Yeah, I had no idea that it happened. And, you know, I mean, uh, my counseling training was was very Rogerian, basically. And so that's that's incredible to hear. I would, um, God, did they document that in any way? Did anyone write anything? Yeah, he, 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 it's, it's been written up, yes. I think in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, I'll, I'll see if I can find you an article. And thank you. That'd be fascinating to see what, what his take on that was. And, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Amazing. So your vision has at once, at least once, yeah. <laughs> been instantiated. <laughs> That's fabulous. And yeah, and, and I think it is, I think there's a possibility for it. You know, I mean, you know, I don't think anyone would have thought that the mindfulness initiative would have managed to get MPs in the parliament meditating. And, and you know, I think they've done, I think they've done 10 or 15 parliaments around the world now. It's like, okay, yeah, that there's uh, an openness. And then the next, I mean, the, the, the other, big factor coming in now to culture is is the psychedelic renaissance and i'm curious to see what that will do especially if politicians start having well-held psychedelic experiences which which remains to be seen but that that could be another interesting tool yeah yeah i'm and i've been really listening to you a lot for the last couple of weeks getting ready for this and so it's, it's been it's been a real grace you know that that's one of the things you impressed me as your your take on psychedelics you seem to have a very clear-eyed view based on those who came before you and all the mistakes and all the the progress that we've made over the last you know 40 or 50 years and the idea of of seeking truth but beyond truth wisdom 
and the idea of contemplative practice. And I'm sure you know uh, Ken Wilber's idea of integral practice. So given the times that we live in, and by the way, I was listening to a talk you gave in 2019, you were talking to David, it felt so dated. I mean, so much has happened in two bloody years. I mean, it was all good stuff, nothing to be denied, but it just felt really dated. But what, what does it look like in your life right now? What is, you know, how do you bring this together? How do you bring practice, contemplative practice, your internet, you're working with people, psychedelics, and how do they play into this? And so, and I know in my case, my practice keeps evolving as I, you know, as I change, I age, my exercise routines, all that's a bit different. But what are you kind of sensing into if you could recommend kind of a meta practice for most people to do? What what would it entail at this point? Oh, interesting question. So, I'm actually on a bit of a journey with this at the moment. Uh, so in terms of my own meditation practice and, and trying to be in a space of non-striving with it. And I, I, I noticed my practice goes through very big waves and back and forth, which I suppose is, is, is true of, of all of us and a natural thing. But I certainly, uh, again, to mention Vervey Keepers has been very influential in my thinking around topics like this, is he talks about having an ecology of practices which I think took me, I had a sense for a long time that, and I had a confusion, honestly, around, well, what practice should I be doing most? And when should I be doing them? And when should I be doing concentration meditation? And when is it better to do mindfulness? And go on to all sorts of a tizzy with that kind of thing. And I feel like trying to find my own ecology of practices as well. I like the common, I like to play with things. I like to kind of combine things and see where they work. And I've always been interested in, I'm very excited about when people are doing that and kind of sharing notes on that. One practice that I found useful in the last couple of years is combining concentration meditation. I've developed something called the sovereignty meditation for the online course, which was just a combination of different of breath work. So Wim Hof style, fast breath work, which I found makes it much easier to meditate afterwards. So breath work and then concentration meditation and then so at the zooming in, I guess, and then zooming out into mindfulness and then ending with inquiry, either through journaling, if someone's by themselves or having a partner to inquire with. And that was really just a kind of a combination of practices that I found particularly useful over the last, well, over my life, I guess, and, and putting them into a format, mainly also for the course to, to show people, hey, these are the different, this, these are different types of meditation. These are different types of practice. And if you do them together, it's easier to notice that they're different. And the order is what I experimented on my uh, you know, with friends and, and my wife in particular, just asking them if they would please. <laughs> okay. Now, now try it with the breathing third. <laughs> just, <laughs> just kind of did it over a few months. So that's something that I, I still, I still find useful. I think one of the great gifts that for me over the last few years has, has really been the inquiry aspect of it though, this, this kind of, and, and the, the whole essence work that goes along with it, with this, the core idea being that we have a, a true essential self and that our personality structure is built up around uh, us adapting to survive in the environment we grow up in, but isn't, you know, isn't necessarily us. It's at least out of date and then coming back into an essence. And there's, there's something around a speaking meditation and following threads and staying curious that is just sort of magic. It's just magic. You know, it's, it's actually what our whole counseling training was based off of was kind of inquiry-based counseling. So it's quite very kind of Rogerian in that sense, very kind of non-interventionalist. So I find any, and journaling, I think is an example of that. Now, in terms of like the edge of where my interests lie, I'm also very interested in 
as as a psychedelic renaissance expands perhaps too fast for its own good in my view but that, that we can perhaps get onto that in a bit but as it expands there is very little out there yet of what it looks like to combine different modalities together and that really fascinates me for example the somatic experiencing world and the psychedelic world you know or for example you know meditation and psychedelics is one that's more established what i've been interested in for a long time but there is just so many different you know the family constellations work and mdma for example there's a real i think opportunity for researchers and skilled practitioners to be exploring what is going to help people and what's going to be the most enriching and connecting practices to bring alongside psychedelics because there's this different school of thought around how psychedelics work but i think most people would argue that the practices and the and the context and the 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 kind of process you do alongside them is more important than the actual drug itself and there's a spectrum of where people sit you know some people think like the drug itself is therapeutic by itself with like even if you don't have as much intervention i think there's truth to that but certainly we don't really know that much you know we really don't have that great an idea of what the potentials are for the rituals i would call them rituals you know the rituals and processes we use alongside them so i'm really interested in that and that feels like a real new frontier on the horizon you know i i've determined later on this fall i'm going to do a guided psilocybin experience. I haven't done it in 20 years, you know, and, and that's something that I, you know, and Roger's work with it and his writing and the interviews of all the first generation of pioneers, Hoffman and Groff and all of these guys, but a very, very, very powerful formative experience. But I went into practice and Mm -hmm. I dedicated the last 20 years to more meditation and stuff. But I feel a rising in the zeitgeist that they're back I think it's important for me to be in integrity in the time that I live in, that I have to go back. And I've never done a guided one. You know, it's usually out on a canyon, out in the wilderness alone, someplace, usually at night. And uh, mm. that's where I did it. But but I think I'll do it. A guided experience. I have a, a friend uh, and he lives in a area where it's legal now. Yeah. Try that one. Beautiful. But I found my experience was a practice. If you do the psychedelic experience without practice, you're really wasting it somehow, you know, because yeah. you don't, you don't ground it. You don't establish it. You don't keep that opening open. And if you just do the practice without the psychedelic experience, well, you're missing a huge boost that yeah. Can, yeah. can get you there quicker. Definitely. Well, I hope you have a really good welcome back to that world. A good kind of re-entry into it. Um, that's exciting. And just before I forget, actually, that's, what one of the things that I think really could be combined very well with the psychedelic experience is inquiry specifically. And I actually, I did that a year or so ago with someone sitting for me and it, it happened quite spontaneously where, you know, I, I felt, I think it started with a twinge, in some, a feeling I had in my shoulder. And I thought, I'm going to inquire into this. And I, and I just said out loud, I think it started with, I'm noticing a kind of movement in my shoulder right now. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious what it is. And then it would move somewhere else. And then it went on for about two hours of just speaking. There was a real synergy of speaking to the experience, deepened the experience. And it became one of the most profound experiences I had. And that's, I think, a cool example because in psychedelic therapy, that's not usually the way it's done. It's very non-interventionist. And there is psycholytic therapy, which is more kind of a talking therapy, but I haven't yet seen people use that modality with, and I'm not sure it would be appropriate necessarily for everyone, but you know, that's the kind of thing I think that is, is very exciting because it, you know, it could well take us to deeper places of insight. 
Join us for part two of the discussion with Alexander Biner as we go deeper into questions of our time. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.